0: Yeah.
1: To the big show, as always, we are here to talk about some Star Trek because that's what we do here on the Brothers Trek About this week. We are again talking about the original series, this episode, uh, This Side of Paradise. Which, boy, oh boy, what an episode, man! I was like, I'm really digging all this Star Trek stuff we've been getting into lately. And oh, uh, the camera's on you, not on me. How great, anyway, whatever. <laughs> Moving on. Really digging in some uh, great Star Trek here. I've really been loving all the episodes we've been hitting lately, and uh, I can start to see why now the show has uh, stood the test of time. Now I have some interesting memories of this show, which we'll get into as we hit the uh, the rewind on it, but it didn't turn out exactly like I remembered it, but we'll get into it in more. And, of course, here to help me do that is my brother from Houston, Ken. Say hello, Ken. Peace and long life. There we go. All right. Well, like I said, we're talking about this side of paradise. And boy, oh boy, did we have a lot of behind-the-scenes drama going on this one. Most importantly, which was less drama but more awesome, DC Fontana takes over as script editor, all because of this episode. This episode is another awesome, tightly written episode uh, that not only has a great A story but a great B story and this little, like, teeny-tiny little C story that's also going on underneath it all. So greatly written. Everything is awesome. And it was because of this episode and how quick she did the rewrite and how well she took the story that was given to her and made it what it is in this episode that uh, DC Fontana takes over as script editor. And now, as we say in the service industry, all the aces are in their places here. Everybody's set up. We got Gene Kuhn here running pretty much the day-to-day on the show. We got dc fontana in the script editor position and uh i think from here on out we're going to be seeing some pretty good trek on top of the great trek that we've already seen come down the pike uh, what have you ever been feeling so far on all this great trek we've been watching
0: yeah the show has clearly you know kind of hit its stride by now we've seen a lot of great episodes some of the early ones you know had interesting concepts but maybe missed some other piece that made the episode not quite as strong as some of these mid season episodes. Uh huh. Feeling pretty good.
1: Yeah. Uh, like I said, I've been loving every minute of it lately. And I, I, I'm just excited. Second season's coming up. And of course, one of the most famous episodes forever coming up here in the next couple of weeks Sit at the Edge of Forever, which we'll talk about some behind the scenes drama. But we'll get into that in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Meanwhile, We're going to be talking about this episode, and it's fun. So uh, they had a lot of, by the time December hit, when this episode was being written, they had uh, already begun to get a lot of scripts back from other writers that were not quite suitable for use. So uh, it was at this point where they uh, they were really concerned that they were going to be running short on scripts. We know what's happened already when they run short before NBC finds them, and they go into much more debt. And they uh, they definitely can't be doing that on the big budgets that, uh, or the smaller budgets that they've been doing on a big budget show. That's for sure. So, uh, like I said, they gave uh, DC Fontana this this big episode to do uh this episode was originally written by jerry soul now jerry soul you might remember or you might not doesn't matter i'm about to tell you was uh the writer of the carbamite maneuver that big episode back in the day so uh, everyone was glad to have him come back and he had put together a couple of uh, uh of draft or of uh, treatments first and then did a couple of drafts but they just weren't working some of the things that they did or some of the things that he did was give the spores a consciousness so that uh, they were almost a part of the bigger, you know, everyone who was in it was attached. It was like that episode from a few weeks ago uh, where they land on the planet and they have the the purge and everything that happened. Blanking on the name. I'm so dumb. But anyway, so that episode where they were part of, like, everyone was a part of the cult, you know, and uh, they were all of one hive mind. So that was one thing that uh, Sol had written to this episode, which everyone was kind of like, kind of didn't we do that already? Uh, although I feel like there are remnants of it that appear in this episode. There's a lot of them sort of knowing who's in, who's not. Uh, but it's not really one thing controlling everybody. It's like everybody's taking this in this. Nah, we'll get there. So um, also another thing was that this episode was originally written for Sulu to have the big uh, love affair in this episode. And uh, what well, was one of the first things DC Fontana did. is She was like... Well, I mean, Sulu, he's a cool guy, and we like George Takai, but can't we bring in one of the bigger guys? And she immediately then thought of Spock. She's like, well, with these crazy spores going on and them giving him the crazy feelings, the LSD-like euphoria that he could actually love, wouldn't it be really great to play that dynamic with Spock? And I think, on top of the awesome Kirkness of this episode, that one of the great parts of this episode is that Spock storyline. I think it's fantastic. So, uh, okay, so uh, Mark Cushman, who of course, it's the book I've been reading, try to talk about every other week or so, just because it's such a great book. Uh, He wrote this about this episode, and I want to get your take on it, see if you agree, disagree, if something's right, something's not right. He says of this episode that this is Star Trek at its best, science fiction blended with surprising humor and gut-wrenching drama, seamlessly interwoven through personal writing and inspired direction. What's your take on that? You like that?
0: Yeah, it sounds good.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's right, too. Uh, it doesn't really hit on the uh, the one thing you say the Trek is all the time of, you know, defining who we are as humans. Although it definitely is defining <laughs> Spock, who he is as a Vulcan, for
0: sure. Well, the, there is this one piece that they deal with a lot in this episode, right? Who, who we are. And we are things that are meant to confront challenges. We are mm-hmm. not content to be to go back to landrew the hive mind episode we we cannot be run by computers who are running our society for us we can't be protected by spores that give us contentment but sap our enthusiasm and our ambition i mean as soon as those guys get the spores out they're like what have we done what have we created yeah we came out having nothing. some ambition to build something we've done nothing mm-hmm. yeah so, that's definitely true
1: So I guess you are right. Or I guess uh, it it does follow follow your take on what Trek is.
0: Yeah, it just gets really specific on this piece. So this is the interesting thing about this episode. This could be simplified, reduced to the Enterprise visits the island of the Lotus Eaters. Hmm. And in one sense, that's totally true. So Mm -hmm. you could say going into space people will encounter chemicals and phenomena that will be drug like, yeah. right? So you know, in the same way that Europeans come to North America and discover chocolate and cocaine and, you know, all kinds of things. I guess they really discovered coca, but we know where that goes, right? It's also the case that this story really does follow the lotus eaters. You get a kind of paradise. Nobody wants to leave. The captain of the ship, Odysseus or Kirk, really still wants to continue his mission to get home or to get on with what he's supposed to be doing. And, you know, while he can be tempted, it's kind of um, temporary with him because he's dominated by his desire to achieve higher things, get home in the Mm -hmm. case of Odysseus continue to explore the the universe uh, for Captain Kirk right and so what we get here isn't simply what would happen if the Enterprise bumped into the island of the Lotus eaters because we have things like explorations of Trek themes like you know as we mentioned the people need to be creative they need to be challenged they need to be engaged but we also get interesting things like what would happen with Spock and that was explored Right, so that just wasn't like a one-off, ha ha, you know, look at look at Spock out of character. Let's get a laugh and move on. They really kind of explored this question with with Spock, and to a lesser extent with uh, McCoy. And you know, we got to see the other characters in in much more diminished roles. Yeah, but we also had things like you know other kind of Trek themes, like we're out on the frontier. And we're dealing with colonies that may not survive. So there are all these other Trek elements that get seamlessly woven into this story. And if you were to go back and, and look at a, at Odysseus, at Reed Homer, there's all these things that are missing from this episode. They're part of Star Trek. And so Star Trek took this, this big story that could have really just dominated everything. And instead, they turned it into a tre- Trek Story successfully.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Bringing the power of myth. That's usually uh, Star Wars' is a big uh, claim to fame, not Star Trek. <clears throat> so, uh, some of the early uh, drafts of this uh, of this show, uh, written by Jerry Soule, were Sandoval's Planet, then one called Power Play, which I thought was interesting. Uh, a title they saved for an episode, obviously, of The Next Generation. Uh, And then he also had the way of the spores, you know, he also had the idea of thousands of puff balls of varied and luminescent colors moving about. I'm going to get back to those puff balls because there's an interesting thing I want to say about those. But um, also in his ending, the antidote for the spores was either the possession of a certain kind of blood type with the introduction of alcohol into the affected person. So originally Kirk had leapt on Spock and forced liquor down his throat to restore him to normal. So that was a weird uh, ending, which glad they changed also in a surprise ending. The spores were revealed to be benevolent, which, you know, we've seen happen a few times on the show and uh, the conscious entities who never intended to act against anyone's ill or, or will. Again, something I'm glad was changed because, uh, uh, again, it's something I feel like we've seen a few times already. So Robertson at uh, NBC had, uh, had said, uh, oh, again, Gene, we have another example of something infiltrating the bodies of our crewmen into the ship, threatening the lives of our heroes. Uh, in the Naked Time, we had a virus. This time it's called the Spore. I mean, we've given it various names. Isn't this just the sameness over and over again? Um Which is part of the reason, then, when uh, DC Fontana took control of this script, she really made it something new and something different. And again, I just can't gush about how much I like this script, it was so well written. And so of course then Robert Justman, you know, he gets a hold of the script, and uh, he likes certain things about it, doesn't like certain things about it, but he does have this to say, which is, um, in the script several times it has the spores floating around. I'm a bit of a loss of how we're going to handle this effect. Which are just like the spores I was talking about. So this is an example of we can't do it, right? Right. It's the 60s. We don't have the special effects budget for this. We don't have digital, you know, computers to help us create these spores. And so instead, let's handle it. And again, it's not perfect, but you know, they 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 basically use like confetti cannons or something right. to shoot the spores out. But it works. It's fine. So sometimes, and I, you, we've all seen movies like this where it's like, oh well, now we can do this thing. Let's do it and be crazy about it. You know, it's like this is this is one of those things where I say, well, the creativity is actually in not being able to do the thing you want to. You know, I mean, right. it's, as a Star Wars fan, I'm allowed to say this. I think sometimes George Lucas overdid it in the prequels. You know what I mean? It's like. My go-to is always the, like, did we need 15 minutes of a pod race? No. Did we need all the cars zooming in the space around, you know, Corazon? It's like, oh, well, what else can we uh, put in the screen to, you know, really fill it up and really make it look like a a lived-in universe, which he did much easier and on a lot lower budget in, you know, the original Star Wars by giving it that lived-in look. Not everything was shiny and polished and blah, blah, blah. So, I think it's probably better that they didn't have the spores floating around. I can't imagine what that special effect would look like in an episode of like the next generation or something. Well, now it is, would
0: look at least real, but go ahead. A few episodes. We talked about the, the James, about James Bond, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this of course is the James Bond problem. When the gadgets become more of a, they don't, they're not just moving the story forward. Right. You know, we need to have bond. have. How the, can we, we build
1: the story around right. the gadgets?
0: So instead of saying, here's a story, you know, Bonds needs to have a knife concealed in his shoe. Instead, they're like, we got a knife in a shoe, build a story around it.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: And so, you know, if they could have been focused on the story and just had better special effects, it probably would have been great. But what you don't want to do is we got these great special effects, you know, figure out what to do with it.
1: Yep. Because
0: exactly. that never turns out well. Well,
1: and that to me is the funniest part of that, uh, of that uh, the documentary, the beginning uh, that's on the Phantom Menace DVD is like, there's so much of that, you know, where I, ILM's just looking at it like, we don't even know how to do those blades of grass, let alone the hundreds of troopers that are going to be then walking across that piece of grass or the 15 minute pod race or any of that stuff. You know, they're just like, wow, we don't even know if we can do these things that you want to do, George. I always think that's uh, fascinating to look at.
0: Yeah, at least there, you, know, you right. have Lucas's vision driving things right. rather than ILM figured out how to make grass look realistic. Well, every planet's a grass planet now.
1: <laughs> well, that's true.
0: That's so, true. You know, what you get here is, and this is, you know, the, we've talked about this kind of problem before. You've got setting, you've got character, and you've got plot. Mm-hmm. And Lucas tended to use his special effects to explore his setting to the detriment of his characters and his plots, because that's where his interests yes. lie. Yeah. It, it's also one of the things that makes uh, Star Wars so mythic, in the same way that Tolkien is mythic, is that you really believe there's a whole world out there because you can go to different, you can like pick things up and look under them and there's stuff going on. Yeah. It's it's not like, you know, you look behind a door and you're like, whoa, it's a set. Close that door. <laughs> <laughs> there's a camera waving at me, <laughs> you know?
1: Weird. So uh, DC Fontana gets her hands on the script. She writes up a first draft. Everybody likes the first draft. She takes it back. She does a second draft. And with that second draft, boom, they go to production on it. So that's amazing. So uh, that, uh, like I said, seals the deal for her. Another weird thing that was in Jerry Sol's original script was the uh, was that it seems like they stumbled across the, the plants in a cave. And so T.C. Fontana got a hold of the script and was like, well, can't they just avoid the cave? Why don't we have them everywhere? And then at least then there's a better chance that something bad will happen. So uh, Ralph Siniski was the guy who directed this episode. Obviously, we keep saying he did a really great job on it. However, he was originally supposed to direct uh, the episode Devil in the Dark, and James Peabney was supposed to direct, uh, uh, who just directed the last episode, uh, was supposed to direct uh, This Side of Paradise. But uh, they changed directors because Kuhn, even though he knew uh, Ralph Saniski from, from working with him on several other shows like The Naked City, The Fugitive, 12 O'Clock High, Wild Wild West, he thought, ah, well, this is your first crack at Star Trek. I'm gonna give you a little bit simpler episode to handle and we'll give Peavney, who's our go-to guy, uh, the Devil in the Dark. So that's what they decided to do. This one. And at first, uh, Siniski was kind of like, uh, I don't know how I feel about this. I kind of really like that other episode. But after filming this episode, even to this day, says, Yeah, I'm not sure anybody else could have could have filmed it as good as I am. And there's a couple of little fun uh, things we'll get to as far as uh, some of the changes he made to setting on this. That uh, that's a lot of fun. Meanwhile, we're gonna talk about Jill Ireland, who played uh, Layla in this movie or in this uh, episode. She had been a regular for one year on uh, the TV show, Shane. She had done five episodes with the man from uncle her, with her real life husband, David McCollum. However, after she divorced him and star Trek, her acting career prospered during a uh, numerous big screen co-starring roles with her second husband, who of all people was Charles Bronson. I know it's weird. What can you say? Uh, doing uh, the mechanic and death wish Two, So, uh, That was uh, cool. Frank Overton, who was cast as Sandoval there, had nearly 100 appearances already at this point in films and television, including multiple turns on The Twilight Zone and Wagon Train, and had a recurring role for three seasons on 12 O'Clock High as well. Uh, On the big screen, he was in many classic films, including playing uh, Sheriff Heck Tate in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. However... And in sad news, six months after filming this episode, he died of a heart attack, and it was only 48. Sad times, sad times. Also, Grant Woods, who, following his appearances in the Galileo 7 and Arena, returned for his third and final time as crewman Kellowitz. He had been been seen as an extra in several episodes in the back, but uh, only had lines in those other episodes. And a short time after this, he, too, lost his life in a motorcycle accident. It's crazy. You know, it's funny because uh, you and I had, uh many millions of years ago, had talked about the JFK assassination and how people were like, you know, how like if you look into one event, into one single event, you're gonna find a lot of like weird things all happened at the same time, you know, mm-hmm. And so that really put that little like bug in my ear. you know, you got the guy who's like got an umbrella for no reason, and everybody's like, he was the one giving the signs, telling everybody to shoot, blah, blah, blah. But you know, if you think, about all the people already that we've listed who have died because they were been you know attached to Star Trek, you could almost say that like, oh my God, being on Star Trek was uh was you know killed it's a cursed. lot of people.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, it's cursed exactly. However, look at all the people that hasn't killed. You know, you still got William Shatner running around at like in his eighties, <laughs> and you know George Takai and you know Nichelle Nichols was recently seen at WonderCon, I think. So you know, it's like, it's crazy. Anyway, I just thought I'd share that thought. So interesting thing about during shooting, so they shot the first two days at this ranch, which was like, strangely enough, out on the Walt Disney lot, uh, where they shot the first couple of days, everything went great, they're on time, you know, things are looking awesome. But on the third day, Jill Ireland couldn't show up. Why? What's she doing? Is she throwing some kind of like, you know, diva fit or something? No, she gets sick and is concerned, as there are her doctors, that it could be the measles. So uh, on the third day of shooting out at uh, out on Walt Disney Ranch, they uh, shot as much as they could of everything else that they hadn't shot that didn't involve her. And uh, then went back that night, shot everything with Shatner in the uh, interior of his quarters. Then the next couple of days, shot the rest of the show in the interiors, uh, also including the interiors of the uh, Enterprise, including Kirk's awesome thing that he has his little speech that he has. So it isn't until day five, well, day four, knowing about day five, that we find out that uh, it turns out it wasn't the measles at all. It was a lot less serious than that. And she was able to come back and finish work. Days five and six, they shoot the rest of the stuff they were supposed to shoot. But sadly, they go over an extra day because they got to go out. They got to go out and shoot uh, all the outdoor stuff with with, uh, Jill Ireland, who uh, was missing that one day. The problem was they couldn't get back onto the Disney lot to shoot where they had been shooting, so they went and shot in a quarry (laughs) where uh, they sort of faked up some trees in a couple of scenes. They somehow made it work. They shot all the stuff, and everything came in on time, which was amazing. And that's it. That's it. That's all I got for the -the behind-the-scenes stuff for now. As we say, let's get to it. Captain's Log, starting.
0: It's five-year mission.
1: So here we are. The side of paradise begins. There is no Captain's Log, just tense music as we approach Omicron 73.
0: Yeah, that was some crazy really... music when they when they show the planet. That was right? like you know, super tension, like this is it. This is destruction. Oh, No. no. And then
1: they're like, uh, "Sir, we're approaching Omicron Seti 3.
0: You know what I mean? It's like, okay, so they're
1: not even—they're not even tense. We're just—we're just being set up for some tenseness of, for no reason. Also, I want to say this about the music, and that is that this is pretty much a reuse entirely of the music from. Ah, oh, why
0: have I forgotten? Uh, the the other Paradise Planet where. Yes, robot- sure leave. Yeah.
1: yes, sure leave
0: that was, so, that was the other one so this is in that one Kirk had a love theme for his love yep. interest, and that'll just be reused for Spock and and Layla
1: absolutely absolutely. but what's funny is that I feel like this is this is some of the music that gets reused a lot you know there's some of the battle music which we've heard reused over and over again. but I really feel like in this episode this is some of the, this is some more of the music that we're gonna hear for the rest of time on Star Trek. Which is a good way to save money, because why not, right? When you're already, you know, $85,000 in debt or whatever they are for the season. So um, we got Kirk talking to Spock. We infer from their combo that uh, 150 colonists have died because of the Berthold Rays. The Berthold Rays, Ken! They they apparently only you know, take care of animal tissue, not any other kind of tissue that exists, living tissue, just animal tissue. Kirk's upset, you know, like, ah, oh, the rigors of, you know, frontier life. How difficult it must be for these people. 150 colonists dead. Uh, Kirk then asks, you know, Spock, are we going to be in trouble if we send some people down? He's like, no, no, no. The risk is, is uh, as low as long as the exposure is limited. So uh, they beam a party of five down. But no, it's actually six people if you count. And, there, and no security. No red shirts are with them, right? We get a, a biologist who I thought was the blue shirt guy, but turns out is the gold shirt guy. What's going on with that? We got McCoy, Spock, Zulu, Kirk, and then another yellow, and then and then a blue shirt who's not the biologist like you would think because he's wearing the blue. Uh, when they arrive, Kirk uh, looks at the uh, the built fences and the built uh, houses and says, oh, another lost dream of some colonists. But not so, because three of men arrive, including Sandoval. They shake their hands and credits roll. We come back to it. We as the audience know that they shouldn't be alive because Spock just told us. And he asks again about the Berthold race. They should be, all be dead. They shouldn't let the, We could only last a week at most. And yet, here they are. Four years later, Kirk says, we're debating in a... (laughs) What kind of hard grizzled Kirk am I doing? We're debating in a vacuum. Let's get some answers, he says. Sandoval takes them inside the house and we get our first shot of Layla, who's got soft focus going on and some light behind her that was purposely set there to give her like an aura so that we like immediately liked her, thought she was pretty. And apparently we find out she's actually met Spock before. Spock, stone-faced, as Layla does this sad half-smile. There's certainly something going on here, that's for sure. Kirk asks, uh, hey, can we, you mind if we run some tests? Uh, You mind if we scan you and the the planet and everybody? Sandoval's like, no, fine, fine, do whatever you need to do. Sulu in a blue shirt end up walking around. Uh, At the very first scene, you can see the blue shirt's breath as he's breathing. Uh, what are we looking for? Says, or, I'm sorry, hold on. I can do Sulu. <clears throat> what are we looking for? Says Sulu. That wasn't great either. Uh, uh, <laughs> the blue shirt says, Anything! Anything that uh, anything that looks wrong. Sulu says, We're on a farm. I wouldn't know what was wrong if it were two feet from me. As and he said scary...
0: sitting next to Chekhov's right. gun.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, scary music plays as he sits next to this weird flower. Uh, Blue shirt calls Sulu over and look in the barn and realizes there are no cows. There are no animals of any kind. Mm. Cut back to Layla talking to Sandoval. Sandoval says, you know the Vulcanian? <laughs> there it is again. Another use of Vulcanian. Who knew we'd be like 25 episodes into uh. Star Trek the first season, and they're still calling people Vulcanians.
0: Well, I know who didn't know. The Romulanians.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The Romulanians, exactly. Uh, We find out a little bit more about her and Spock's relationship. Uh, She loved him, but never knew how he felt. He had said to her he had none to give. And she's kind of a little bit creepy in this scene, just a little bit like, uh going on here she's got that like weird like plastered on smile you know that gives her like a a cult you know thing and
0: uh there is a certain amount of you know steppard smiling going on in this episode
1: yes certainly that was was a good call on the steppard absolutely uh everybody's really happy to be there and be a part of be a part of what's going on Elias asks her if uh she would like spock to say To which she says, somewhat ominously, there is no choice, Elias. He will stay. Whew! Okay, you creepy girl. Uh, (laughs) Bones is doing his his due diligence. Everyone is super healthy. Um, In fact, in that earlier Sulu draft, uh, we find out before they go down that he has a, a acquired a disease that would probably get him dismissed from Starfleet. But after his spore infection, he was fine. Ah. Kind of a little thing that got lost in the playing, but it comes out here. Meanwhile, Spock says uh, there are no animals, no birds or bees. He wonders how any life grows here. Although they did bring some with him. Sandoval bring, Kirk, brings Kirk out into the, uh, the farm. Says, uh, the soil grows anything that we put into it. How convenient. Yellow shirt arrives at the biology report. Like I said, he's a yellow shirt, so strange. But uh, he says, uh, but I've noticed that there are just enough crops to sustain the colony and nothing more. There's nothing extra. Hmm, strange. Bones calls him back in and we find out that Sandoval used to have scar tissue on his lungs from pneumonia when he was a kid and surgery removes his appendix. But in these readings that Bone had ju- Bones had just given him, he's found out that his lungs are fine and his appendix has grown back. Hmm. Layla, meanwhile, stands and smiles a little creepily while Spock works. Spock tries to continue to figure out the mystery as Layla tries to speak to him about old times. She finally relents and says, I will tell you how this has happened, how we're all still alive and how it's going on, why we're in the condition we're in, but only if Only if once I do, you will talk of your feelings. Feelings are alien to me, says Spock. And off they go. She even offers her hand, but he does not take it. Back in the camp, Kirk says, "Uh, hey, it's time. I got to get you all out of here. It's my duty. We got to go. But Sandoval refuses the chance. Kirk wants to know what happened to the livestock. Where have they all gone? Sandoval responds with, we're vegetarians. And no, we're not going to leave this fine planet. Cut back to Spock and Layla discussing the plants. All of a sudden, a confetti cannon goes off and Spock is hit. <laughs> the spores. Oh no. But the, but the emotions rushing through Spock, they're hurting him. It's just like in the naked now. It's pain. It's pain. Uh, but, then they, but then he comes around and he smiles. And he says to her, "I love you. I can love you now." And they kiss, and perhaps more as we go to commercial.
0: I would, I would love to see the uh, you know the concept guy, the, the writer you know there'll be you know puffballs of light and the prop master's like, "No, no, I've got it. John, run out to a party supply store. us
1: some confetti guns. <laughs> That is the stuff, man. That is the stuff.
0: And get me more putty.
1: We come back from uh, commercial. Captain's log. the colon- We can't get the colonists to leave. Anything we try, they won't leave for. Kirk and Sandoval go at it again. He's not leaving. Kirk gathers his crew together. They all talk for a second and realize DeSalle is missing. As is Spock. Spock won't answer. We find Spock. We, as the audience, find Spock lying in the grass with his head in Layla's lap. Layla, laying in your knees, Layla. Beg a darling, please, Layla.
0: All right. Anyway, don't well, look at the clouds. Well, wait. Look at the clouds. We've missed something interesting here. Oh, hit me. So when he gets hit with the cannon. Yeah. And. I think when he talks with Kirk, he's still in his uniform. The very next scene when they're looking at clouds or he's picking flowers or staring at bugs or whatever he does, he's yep. now he's now in the costume of the columnists. Yes, he like, sure is. Where did his clothes go? Why did he yeah. change clothes? Who brought an outfit out there with him, for him to change into? I think it's just exactly. that the audience realize he's become a cult member. Yeah.
1: That's right. <laughs> exactly.
0: But it's, it's funny when you're like, where does uniform go? <laughs> right.
1: Well, apparently he and Layla just went and had sex. Uh, I think that's what happened. So he just didn't put the uniform back on. Uh, so I thought that this was, this was like just what more wistful totally unSpock thing could we, you know, have Spock doing than laying in someone's lap watching Clouds? Like, I mean, that is just, like, the perfect example of what Spock would be doing outside of, you know, being Spock. Mm -hmm. When he's not Spock, what's he doing? He's laying there looking at clouds. That is definitely very (laughs) spock like I love it.
0: Yeah, it's like Mr. Scott, who, by the way, is not in this episode, who we find out likes to read technical manuals on his day off. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Spock's got to be doing this. He's got experiments going. He's, you know, studying astrophysics, he's reading up on science journals, or he's looking at clouds, one of the two.
1: (laughs) So uh, here's then where Kirk and Spock have their scene. Uh, Spock is kind of confrontational in this scene, while also being like totally laid back guy. You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Spock, I want you to tell me where you are. Uh, I don't think uh, I don't think I want to tell you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like he's like almost like the kind of like perfect sixties hippie. You know, is almost oh, the kind yeah. of thing like,
0: sure hey man,
1: I'm not gonna tell you where I'm at. All right.
0: I'm sure that their idea of uh this kind of rebellion, this kind of lotus eating. You know, I'm I'm not going anywhere. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna be chill or whatever. Was yeah. 60s hippies rather than. Yeah, I mean, even
1: even Jerry Soul says that this was the idea of this kind of came from the idea of LSD. You know, like what happens if the crew takes LSD and they all become these like warm, loving people and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, definitely that.
0: Except the A-Lobuses, so, uh, so clearly it's opium.
1: Right. So uh, Kirk tells Sulu and uh, the blue shirt guy, go find the Sal. I'm gonna go find Spock. Bones, you're in charge, man. Get everything ready so we can get out of here. Uh, but Bones says, uh, "You know, that didn't sound like that didn't sound like Spock at all." Uh, I thought you said you'd like him if you mellowed. I never said that," said Bones.
0: <laughs> it's like the second Although, or third time we've had the. I've never said that. Right?
1: Exactly. And what's even funnier about it is, is that like. I just, like, is this the time for this conversation? I mean, really. Like, he was just pissed a half a second ago, The you know, Spock wasn't listening to him. But anyway, Kirk sets off to find, find Spock using the open communicator. And he says, in parties of two or more, I don't want anybody to be left alone on their own. Kirk and Sulu and blue shirt guy find the communicator. And uh, then they see Spock laughing and hanging upside down in a tree. Now, this is one of those this is one of those scenes I was telling you about where the director was like, he had originally had it all set. It was all set in a big field. And so this was supposed to, you know, Spock and Kirk meeting in this big field, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, it was just dull. It didn't really work. And I looked over and there was this like patch of trees here with that crazy tree trunk hanging there. And he was like, hey, can we set up over there? Let's do it again over there. So that's, uh, so we, here we go. We got another example of, you know, a guy taking... What he's giving, going. This doesn't work. Can we change this? Is this gonna like ruin anything if I do this? And so, uh, and of course, everybody loved it. You know, it's now one of the scenes. You know, everybody talks about from this episode. Spock hanging up a, upside down from a tree.
0: Something else he does when he's not being Spock.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Cut back to Bones. LaSalle finally shows up, uh, and we find that he's bringing two of the plants aboard the ship. Now, is at this point LaSalle, DeSalle, he's not LaSalle, I do this all the time, same character. Anyway, is DeSalle uh, already under the influence of the spores yet? Or is he just bringing them up there because they're really interesting? That's the question. Science! 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 Spock then leads Kirk and the crew uh, to a bunch of flowers, and more confetti cannons go off. And instantly, Sulu and the blue shirt guy are under the influence. Kirk somehow manages to escape it. When Kirk gets back to the beam-up point. Oh, hey, can we talk about the beam-up point for a second? So I don't know if we've discussed this yet or not. This is one of those things that kind of bugs me about the transporter. This happens a lot in Next Generation 2, so I just want to get it out of the way. Why are there always these specific beam-up coordinates that uh, we have to go to? You know, I mean, if they've got the communicators, if if if. If in next generation, they've got the little badges that let them know where they are, then why can't we just, why is there always a beam up point? Hit me with this.
0: I think it's more a question of they want a place where they all know that they come back to, so that they orient themselves to a central location. I don't think that they're physically incapable of beaming up, but what they may not want to do is, well, you beam up from here and then you beam up from there. And then like seconds later, some guy beams up from someplace else
1: that's fair so it's like their meeting point basically yeah all right that makes sense i like that a lot better
0: see i just needed
1: it explained and now i'm happy with it um and we have seen him do emergency beam outs too you know like a, that's a doctor crusher thing so many times where somebody's hurt and they're like emergency beam out at these coordinates okay see now i'm happy all right so bones is there uh when kirk shows up and he's like hey Jimmy boy, how do you do it? I don't know why I'm doing it. <laughs> I I do, can do none of the accents when I want to do them on the show. Everywhere else I can be running around. And my accent's fine, but no. Ah, Jimmy boy, great. Uh, maybe it's because I'm thinking of, uh, of uh, what's his face? The the Surely, Irish guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah with him. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Sure, leave that guy too. But I was thinking of the one uh, in, like, The Naked Now.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, whose name I can't remember either. Man, me and my names and accents and everything today. It's all out the window. Uh, All right, anyway. So yeah, Jimmy Boy. Calls him Jimmy Boy. Uh, We also find out that 100 or or so plants have been beamed aboard. Uh Uh-oh. On the ship, Kirk makes his way to the bridge, tells Uhura, like, hey, I need you to contact uh, the Federation. I need to get some uh, important information. But Kirk says, uh, but Uhura says, nope, I just short-circuited all the communications. We can only talk to the planet for now and only then for a little while. He then picks up a plant, tosses it in anger. He wanders down into into the depths, trying to find anybody on the ship. And he finds this line of people waiting to transport down. He sends them all back to their stations. And Leslie says, no, we're not gonna go back. Kirk responds, this is mutiny, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, it is.
0: <laughs> dun,
1: dun, dun, commercial. The whole, the whole crew has been turned by the spores. Back at it, Kirk tries to tries to get bones to help him figure out a counteract for the spores. But spores, uh, oh, yeah, you know, join my rest. What I'd really like to find is a uh, mint julep. That's what I'd like. Hangs up. Can't talk to Kirk anymore. Kirk goes back to the planet to try to make anyone see reason. Spock gives a little background on the spores we find that they had traveled through space until they had landed here and luckily they thrive on Berthold race and all they do is wait for humans to come along and inhabit so look i know like one big thing they always say in doctor who is how like the human race spreads through the galaxy like you know a, a virus or something but uh, you know how many humans are there in the galaxy at this point in star trek right uh, I mean, are the, these poor little spores could be could have been waiting there forever and never seen another human, right? I mean, we see that it works on Vulcans, yeah. They, but, you know, they, I'm just saying that it's just a one little minor I have with this script is that uh, they're, they're just waiting for humans. You have to wonder what it would be like in a Klingon, you know what I mean?
0: Oh, you yes. All those so they had their Klingon scenes, right? You got a weapon. Oh, right. Yeah, probably. Though, yeah. Shooting them at Klingons are all like, oh, why? Why are we fighting? <laughs> it's wrong, man. Let's let's do the minimal possible work to like grow some grain. I don't know. <laughs> do you do you know the whole mojito story? I don't think so. So, Karen and I would watch Burn Notice, right? Okay. And we watched a lot of Burn Notice seasons mm-hmm. of it. I think we watched the whole thing. Right, and uh, well we because Sam Axe makes such a big deal of the mojito, I started making a mojito for us every right. time we would watch the episode. So it became a thing, right? Okay. And uh, the difference between the mojito and the mint julep is only the alcohol. It's basically sugar, mint, and uh, it's gonna be. What is it? Rum in, in a mojito and bourbon and a mint julep. Yeah, same drink, different co- you know, different set of alcohols because you know you make the alcohols that are local to where you're at.
1: Right. Yeah, that was a pretty red uh, mint julep that he had
0: in the uh, in the episode. Don't you think? He was working with what he had available. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, had a had bit so alcohol, he could have knocked himself right out of the spores.
1: That's true. That's true, right? If it would have gone with that earlier uh, earlier version. So uh, Sandoval says, uh, the spores give us the help. Or no, Spock says, the spores give us the health we want for nothing. Kirk says, a man that stagnates. If he doesn't have ambition or a challenge, that's what happens to a man. Everyone's saying, join us. Join us like a cult. So Kirk goes back to the ship. He's there by himself, alone on the bridge. Interesting production thing here. Dun-da-dun. So there's that empty shot of the bridge before the turbo lift opens to admit Kirk, right? So this was the best available piece of film that they had to use in the episode Relics of the Next Generation. Oh, you know this. I do, yes. Nice. So uh, basically they created enough of the set to have Spock's, or not Spock's, Kirk's captain's chair, and then the doors, and then that side to the right. And everything else was just a loop of this scene playing in the background. So uh, that's pretty interesting. It's funny, though, because I always thought that this was like a complete rebuild, because it doesn't quite exactly look. And I we and even, while I was watching the episode, went and compared the doors... And the doors in the Next Generation episode look a little bit thinner, look a little bit smaller. So it doesn't quite look right there. And uh, the blue, I think, is a little bit different in my opinion. But, uh, you know, I'm just saying. And, you know, the other thing, too, is I think that in the 60s that it wasn't polished, you know. So everything had kind of been used at this point, you know, for, you know, almost a year of filming, you know the captain's chair isn't like 100% amazing, blah blah blah. But when they rebuilt it, maybe that was just a little too shiny and new. I don't know. That's it's just me. I'm sorry. But that was an interesting little piece of information I didn't know there. So anyway, we get Kirk alone on the ship. He's calling around the empty ship. I don't think he's expecting to hear anybody. You know what I mean? He's not. But he's calling around for uh, Spock for uh, biochemistry station. I don't know whatever whoever else he's calling. So uh, he sits down, crosses his leg, makes a captain's log. 3417.7, it's mutiny on the ship. I can only contact the surface. The ship can't be piloted alone. I'm marooned here. The first of Shatner's great little performances that he gives in this episode, so great. He wanders down,
0: what? you get one of these moments, like a lot of times we're gonna lose orbit in like six yep. hours, which yep. is ridiculous. Um, here he says it will take months for him to lose orbit, which is much more realistic. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: He crosses down to navigation, and there's a wide shot when he does that. But I looked and it is not there. The spore plant is not there. He threw it when he threw it in the earlier scene. He threw it and it landed in front of navigation. And then in the wide shot, it's not sitting there, but then he sits down. And what happens? The plant comes alive and spoots him with the confetti cannon. Oh, well. Party favors. Exactly. So, uh, despite that continuity error, uh, Kirk has now changed. He calls Spock and tells him he is now one of them. Spock is happy and agrees to meet him at the rendezvous point. He says, I just got to go pack up some things in my quarters. So he goes down to his quarters and uh, he looks at an old medal that he had won, a silver medal for something running. Who knows, I can't, couldn't quite tell. Uh, but he doesn't take it with him. Hmm. He gets down to the transporter room. It's dark. He's a minute away from beaming down. And then he just says, no, I can't leave. So, It's anger, right? Like, at this point, he's feeling uh, anger at the people on the planet, anger at losing his ship. It's weird, because in my memory, I always felt like uh, this was another version of the captain who can't leave his ship, right? It's uh, more of the uh, Hornblower, Horatio Hornblower. Hey, I got a name. Uh, You know, him wanting, can't leave the ship, wanting to be with him, his ship is his life, blah, 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 but it isn't quite there in this scene, but when I was younger, that's how I felt that that this always was. So it's a little bit different, but that's fine. Captain's log supplemental. I must anger Spock. That's what it is. It's the anger. But <laughs> he says here of Vulcan's strength. Does not use the word Vulcanian. Instead here uses the word Vulcan, interestingly enough. Is this D.C. Fontana's uh, work, right? Which way she wanted to go, D.C. Uh, uh, but he says, "But Spock's strength, when angered, could kill a man. It's a risk I have to take." <laughs> so, Kirk calls him. Uh, so Kirk uh, calls him up. He says, "Hey, I've got some equipment I think we need. You should come up and help me carry it." Kirk. Uh, so uh, Spock beams up, and then Kirk eggs him on calling him a computer. Let's go over these, because they're fun. A computer, he calls him. A half-breed, he says. You don't have a brain, just printed circuits. Spock tries to you know, play it off, ah, it's fine, it's fine. And he tries to beam down again. But Kirk jumps in his way, calling a simpering, devil-eared freak. Your father was a computer and your mother was an encyclopedia. My mother was a teacher and my father was an ambassador. Your father was a computer like his son. A planet of traitors. A Vulcan never lived with an ounce of integrity. A traitor from a race of traitors, disloyal to the core, like the rest of your subhuman race. And you are the gall, the gall to make love to that girl. So I guess that pretty much clears that up. And that's it. Oh, no, no, no. It continues. A carcass full of memory banks. You belong in a circus right next to the dog-faced boy. That's all that Spock can take. And then he wails on Kirk. Boom, 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 boom. Sineski, the, the director originally wanted to uh, film this wide angle you know to sort of hide the stunt doubles but uh, the transporters the transporter set was too small so uh, he wasn't able to achieve this. So we get some pretty afi- some more obvious stunt men working here but we close going to a commercial with Spock lifting a big cart over his head. the shot from below making him seem larger. Commercial back to it spot comes around almost immediately but i love this there's some great leonard nimoy acting here because he doesn't like shake it off right away you know what right. i mean he doesn't go back to he's clearly affected by this and he's affected for the next few minutes during this scene uh so that so i thought that was really great kirk now uh, comes up with the idea to build a subsonic machine that they can transmit over the communicators Spock stops them on their way out of the transporter room And says uh, Sir it is unlawful to hit a fellow officer It's a court martial offense Kirk stops and smiles And says If we're both in the brig then who's going to build that subsonic transmitter (laughs) Quite logical captain And off they go Bones then finds Layla Waiting for uh, Spock at the uh, rendezvous point Bones calls up to the ship As he answers, Layla takes the communicator. Now, again, here we can see that it is difficult for Spock to talk to her. Yeah. Let alone lie to her at this point, right? He's got to lie to her. Uh, He promises to beam her up with McCoy. Kirk asks, uh, should you be talking to her while she's still under the influence? Spock takes a moment, doesn't answer, and then says, I will be back shortly, sir. Spock beams McCoy and Layla aboard. And she can tell, she can tell immediately after one hug.
0: Well, who couldn't? Well, right, exactly, I know. He's back to being Mr. You Know, like <laughs> Robot Man.
1: Truth. Uh, She says, I told you I loved you six years ago, and here I am repeating myself. We could have a life there. Oh, uh, we could not have a life there, but here we can. Come back with me, she says. So, uh... We not only have a problem here with the spores, but uh, Spock's only chance at love here too, at love here. Spock says, I have a responsibility to the ship and to that man on the bridge.
0: It's a different kind of love.
1: It is, it's beautiful. I am what I am, Layla. That's what he says, which is both beautiful. It is, it's a nice little touching moment. He's like, hey, I can't change the color of my stripes. I mean, I could if I was under the influence of the spores, but then I would be under the influence of the spores, and that's just, you can't do that. It also reminds me of Popeye.
0: <laughs> I am what I am, and that's all that I am. I, I, yeah,
1: yeah. Toot toot. <laughs> it's a song, and that Robert, in the, the Robert uh, director, Robert Alden. The Robert. He's like, I am what I am, and that's all that I am. I'm Papa Say the man. Yep.
0: Um <laughs> in the cartoons they did that. Yep. Spock
1: also says, if there is a self made purgatory, then we all must limit it. So here we go. We got we got a we got a strong man, right, making a choice here between yep. well, not, not love, but not only his uh, duty to the to the ship his duty to Kirk, right? Like he just mentioned, but also really a duty to his race, right? To not love, to be non-emotional. That's part of, I think, it's just the layers upon layers in this episode. It's so great. It's such a great piece for Spock. It's amazing.
0: And and it's why making Spock the love interest in this particular episode is so much more interesting than Sulu. Now the problem is, you know, it's like they never get around to giving Sulu these kinds of stories. (laughs) Of course not. But this was clearly an episode that should have gone to Spock.
1: Oh, yeah. Again, just looking at the layers and just, you know, this scene specifically just shows the, you know, the awesomeness of the love story between him and her. It's so good. You know, it's funny. I remember back in the, like, early 1990s, somebody wanted to write a sequel to Star Trek IV with the, the, the big thing that was looking for the whales... They find it out in space again. Anyway, the author originally wrote it for Sulu and Chekhov. And, uh, you know, I don't remember who owns the rights to the books, Penguin or whoever the publisher was, says, uh, no, but let's just go ahead and make it about Kirk and Spock. Uh, We don't need it to be about these other two. It won't sell as well and blah, blah, blah. So the author ended up like taking her name off of it because she's like, I don't even know what the story is anymore. It isn't the one that I wrote. And I remember even like being a little bit like, upset about it at the time too because i'm just like well that could have been a nice little story that we could have read about checkup and sulu right but as we go on through this series we're finding that all the episodes are like kirk and spock you know what i mean they no everybody else so plays second fiddle with the exception of bones obviously that everyone yes, else does play so second fiddle to these lead guys
0: it's the big trio and everything right. about the show focuses back on the trio and i think yeah. part of it is just the way television worked and the idea that like well we can't have a real ensemble Mm -hmm. the number of lead characters has to be so small and maybe too that's why like oh go ahead i was (laughs) just gonna say coming off
1: of uh the next generation you know like maybe that's what kind of like irked me about it the most is Mm -hmm. next generation you had you know you have your data episodes well, there are too yeah. many data episodes in my opinion, but you know, you have your data episodes, you have your Riker episodes, you have your Troy, your Crusher. You know, everybody at least gets one or two episodes a season
0: that they, you know, and they,
1: they were get to be willing to of.
0: do episodes that focused on um, you know, Keiko and, and uh, O'Brien. Yeah. And yeah. You, even if they got a B story, it was like, Well, this is you know, we're exploring other p- parts of the crew. Yeah. A- or to do, you know, stuff that was like lower decks. That was, let's look at the ship from a different point of view. Other characters.
1: Yeah. Or even Barkley, you know, came out of one of those kinds of episodes where it's like, right. let's take this little like, tech guy who's, you know, working in engineering and suddenly gets addicted to the, uh, the holodeck.
0: Right. Know?
1: Which all of us at the time and still are thinking like, yeah, I could see that happening. Sure. Easily. <laughs> holodeck could be much more fun than real life. So I also have to question, like, Kirk... Er, maybe you can help me like break down this line. I know I'm supposed to be the poet and everything, but, but uh, Spock says, you know, we all must live in our self-made purgatories or whatever. Like that sounds horrible. Nobody wants to do that. I mean, I get, okay, hold on. I think I got it. I think it just came to me, me and my E coming out here, but it's like, he's basically saying like, we've all gotten hurt in our lives and we all have these like things that will follow us for the rest of our lives. That'll always be, bothersome to us
0: i think yeah because that's real life and paradise isn't real life
1: right oh yeah very good see between the two of us we totally broke it down amazing that's why we're doing the show um also we apparently we find out that spock has another name that we couldn't possibly pronounce also that's a weird line to end that scene on
0: it's unpronounceable
1: Exactly. I'm going to move on from that. Oh, but I did like at the very end, just before they cut away, that Spock does wipe the tear from her face. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. I like that. You know, and it's funny because having now the 40 years of Spock arc like we have, you know, where we get him in Star Trek, you know, Star Trek four or five, you know, where he's a little more human. He's a little more okay with like loving his comrades and, you know, that kind of thing. Like that moment plays into all the rest of that. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I'm sure you know it does it never even occurred to Nimoy, but I uh, you know I think it's nice. So uh they then turn on the transmitter which is uh, supposed to feel like a little like annoying itch or annoying little something under the skin.
0: Itching power. And uh because yeah, they were at the supply store. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh next thing you know they're going to be like playing with the X-ray specs. I know uh and then everyone fights sulu and LaSalle, the yellow shirt and the blue shirt bones and sandoval even go at it that was a fun little scene with bones picking that fight there with sandoval and uh everybody comes around even sandoval comes around
0: oh, right mad. away yeah
1: yeah mad and angry at himself no accomplishments we've done nothing maybe we weren't meant for paradise Oh, so later. So everybody's back on the ship. Everybody's good. They're taking everybody. uh, Didn't write any other notes. Uh, So everybody's back on the ship. They're taking everybody to a new colony or or at least Starbase 27. And everybody's happy and good. And so, of course, we get our final shot here of of Kirk talking to uh, the crew. And uh, he says, uh, maybe we weren't meant for paradise. Maybe we were meant to scratch and claw our way out. Love that. Which again is what this episode's all about, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, Mr. Spock, he says, "You never said anything about uh, your, uh, or you haven't said uh, what your feelings on the what happened on the planet, something like that." Spock says, uh, "I don't have much to say, except that for once, I was happy." Well, it's so sad. Yeah. It's like, uh, again, because there's sort of the the parallels, the correlation between the two, uh, between data. And and Spock, you know, like Data gets that laugh. Q lets him laugh in that one scene. And then, like, he actually has feelings. And then, you know, it's like, uh, how do I live without it knowing I once had it? You know, that's sad. So, yeah, why don't you, uh, since you are our resident Vulcan, um, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, uh, what you thought about Spock in this episode?
0: So, in one sense, what they get to do is take the Vulcan out of Spock, Right. Mm-hmm. And right. Then they, of course they put it back in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> True.
0: And you know, it's difficult to imagine losing your Vulcanness ness and, and not being like, Oh, this is, this is awkward and unpleasant and I don't like it. Right. But it said he was happy, so I'm sure that was the spores. It was the in- intoxicating effect of the spores.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's too interesting because Nimoy was even worried. You know, once he, he read the script, he was like, you know, we've created this character. Are we going too far afield? Blah, 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 But then once he read the script, he was like, I love it. Totally great. Great job, you know. And uh, Entertainment Weekly liked this episode. The magazine picked it as the eighth best Trek of all time. And uh, so did Leonard D Boy. He put this side of paradise in his uh, among his uh, half dozen favorites,
0: as uh, was written there. I can totally see why. Once he kind of gets recovered, he wants to yeah. go back to being his normal self, because it's kind of like, you know, you wake up and maybe you think you had a fabulous time, right? You wake up at some girl's apartment, and it's clear that you like were at some kind of party place, and you know there's. <laughs> right uh boy must have had a great time last night but this is not who i am this is not what i want to be at. <laughs> i am <Yeah. laughs> i think i should go to work
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the side of paradise was actually brought in under the studio allowance by less than ten thousand dollars so uh, that brings the uh first season debt only down to uh 76, so that's good for only for the season. There's only seventy-six thousand over budget, so Probably that's not too bad. Three quarters of
0: an episode. Uh, in Yes, the uh,
1: exactly. Jerry Sol gets uh, gets sent the script with DC Fontana's name on it, and not only is he unhappy about the fact he doesn't even get the credit on it, but he's upset that they uh, basically completely changed the script. You know, so uh, he's pretty pissed about it. He insisted that the screen credit be given to Nathan Butler instead, uh, just because of how. Uh, Upset he was about it, uh, he even went so far as to uh, write a letter to uh, the Science Fiction Writers Association newsletter, and and basically like trash Star Trek and and Roddenberry himself for all of these continued instances of you know being rewritten of uh, Star Trek rewriting you know famous people's works. But interestingly enough, the first person to rush to uh, Roddenberry's side and Star Trek, Homer. Uh, because he. He was still on board with it. No, was Harlan Ellison, of all people, uh, he was bothered by this, and he went public with his opinions, blasting Soul uh, in the November issue of the uh, Science Fiction Writers Association newsletter. Soul then, uh, a couple of months later, saw Space Seed, and then sent, you know, Roddenberry this like kind of goodwill thing, basically saying, "Hey, I really like that episode of Space Seed. I think that's like some of the best stuff I've seen on television lately. Great job." And Roddenberry's response was basically like, hey, thanks. We like getting great reviews on television that we've written. You know, so it's kind of this little, like, dig back at him. And, uh, unfortunately, there was a lot of correspondence that goes on between Soul and uh, Roddenberry. Where Soul, again, is kind of trying to, like, you know, fence pipe. Yeah. Yeah, fence some fences. And Roddenberry is, like, having none of it. It really uh, it kind of sucks. So, uh, but Sol does come back, but it isn't until late, uh, it isn't until late until season three that he comes back. And uh, of course, by then the show's almost over. So it's so sad. Uh, there was a lot, a lot of that correspondence now is in the, the Cushman book I was telling you about. These other the voyages, as I continue to tell you about. And you can read all the letters, and it's, uh, it's amazing. Some of the letters as they are written. And that is it. That is all I have for this week. That's amazing. Anything else that we didn't get to from you, sir? No, about I this episode alright well that'll allow wrap it up for this episode as I was saying the devil in the dark is the next episode here big Spock mind meld episode and I think if I recall correctly it was also during this episode that William Shatner's father died so ooh, some interesting behind the scenes stuff going on in this episode and more you know we always love to talk about the behind the scenes stuff so make sure you join us next week as always I'm saying goodbye say goodbye Ken
0: live long and prosper
1: There we go. Perfect.
0: And we will see everybody next week.